The first chapter of the book of Yoshua is the very beginning of Nevi'im, of the prophets section of the Hebrew Bible. And the narrative here continues immediately from the narrative at the end of the book of Devarim, the end of the five books of the Torah. The story is set following the death of Moshe. Moshe is the man chosen by God to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt, to bring them to receive the Torah at Har Sinai, and ultimately to lead them to this point where they are now encamped on the Yarden, in the Jordan River, on the precipice, about to cross over and enter their promised land. Yoshua is a student of Moshe, and he has already been designated as a successor earlier in the book of Devarim. So now I'll quickly review and summarize what happens in the chapter. First, God turns to Yoshua and instructs him to lead the masses of the nation of Israel across the Jordan into the land which they're going to conquer. God promises divine assistance. He commands Yoshua, Chazak ve'ematz, be strong and be resolute. And he instructs him to keep the Torah and its values with him both day and night. Now, Yoshua turns to the people and he begins to prepare them for their journey to cross over into the land, to find their national destiny. The response of the people to Yoshua is fascinating and very heartening. The people say to him, the king is dead, long live the king. Or in their own words, they say, We will obey you just like we obeyed Moshe. Nothing has changed in their eyes, and the mission continues. So that's the story of the first chapter. But what I think is the most interesting about this chapter is actually what happens in the very first verse. In the very first verse of the book, of the section of Nevi'im, the text begins, And it was after the death of Moshe, the servant of God. So the last time that we heard Moshe referred to in this way, as a servant of God, is in the narrative of his death at the end of Devarim. And over there in that same story, the Torah gives us a spoiler. It says, There never again arose a prophet like Moshe, whom God knew face to face in this personal way. So before we have the chance to be exposed to anything that happens after his life, to any of the subsequent leadership, we're already told this is it. We're never going to have somebody like him. From here on in, the leaders of the people aren't going to have this special, divine, personal relationship, and there won't be any people like that at all. So, when the text in the first chapter of the book of Yoshua begins by telling us that the death of Moshe has just taken place, I think it's more than just a timestamp. It's not just telling us where the story is and when it is and giving us a little perspective to continue our reading from the last book. I think what's happening here is the text is introducing a qualitatively different era. Not just a different era, but a different rest of history. It's saying we're in a brave new world. There is no longer somebody like Moshe, and again, the people will no longer be led by people like him with this special relationship with God. And I think it's very significant 
that the one who actually is tasked with bringing the people to their promised land, with ending the journey of the nation of Israel, is not Moshe, but rather the first of the flawed leaders, the first of the leaders who don't have this special personal relationship with God. The generation of Yeshua, then, has to be different from the generation of Moshe. It has to have a different mindset and a different mission. It has to have different calculations. Not no longer able to receive direct communications from God for every decision. What I found, and I find this very interesting, is that in some 21st century American social movements, the same distinction between the generation of Moshe and the generation of Yeshua, or as they're called in this context, the the Moses generation and the Joshua generation, has played a similar role. The contrast is very stark. First, there is the Christian homeschooling movement, a movement that I was not very familiar with until recently. The basic tenets of the movement are that it seeks to protect children from the depravity of government education. The idea is that children should be educated at home by their parents who can foster within them their community's conservative religious values. In 2003, a youth movement and political advocacy group called Generation Joshua was founded. Um, It was founded by figures at the uh, figures at the head of the Homeschooling Legal Defense Association. And its mission was to create a community for its 7,000 plus youth members, and now it's over 100 clubs across the nation, to create a united political front for the cause of Christian homeschooling and a sense of shared values among the people who are part of that community. One of the founders of Generation Joshua is a man named Michael Farris. He's a constitutional law scholar and a Baptist minister. And two years following the the founding of Generation Joshua in 2003, he published a book in 2005, which is a manifesto of the Christian homeschooling movement. It's called The Joshua Generation, Restoring the Heritage of Christian Leadership. In this book, he articulates very clearly what he means by his movement being in a Joshua generation, and what Generation Joshua, the youth movement, means by invoking that term as well. He says that the Moseses of the movement are the ones who first enabled Christian families to break free from the bonds of government education, of secular education. But, he says, in the 21st century, the movement is in need of new leadership, who is ready to further the cause, not only creating an opening and allowing families to make this choice, but to bring them to the promised land, to establish a society founded upon their values. I quote from the book directly, Farah says, the Joshua generation must engage wholeheartedly in the battle to take the land. It's very clear that he's echoing the mission of Moses and the mission of Joshua themselves. The Moseses are the ones who take the people out of slavery. The Joshua is the one who brings them to their promised land. Now, uh, a very different and a more prominent expression of the Joshua generation concept came two years later. In March 2007, there was a ceremony in a chapel in Selma, Alabama, 
commemorating the anniversary of the Voting Rights March. It was the uh, 42nd anniversary of the Voting Rights March. Of course, this is more relevant and fresh on our minds because we recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of this event, and our celebration was aided by uh, a powerful and popular movie. One of the speakers at this event in Selma was a young U.S. senator and presidential candidate named Barack Obama. Then, Senator Obama used the same phrase, the Joshua Generation, to describe the mission of his generation in the civil rights movement. Senator Obama said that he was where he was, running for president, only because of the tremendous sacrifices and accomplishments of the Moseses of civil rights, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. And of course, there's something especially significant about this, about this association, because uh, famously, in Martin Luther King's last speech, delivered the day before he was assassinated in 1968, he seemed to, to provide a Moses association himself, to, to compare himself to Moses in a sense. He said in that speech, I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Martin Luther King, in this speech, is very consciously invoking the episode in Devarim where Moshe is allowed by God to ascend to the mountaintop of Har Nevo, and from there to look over the river into the promised land, which he will not be allowed to reach. Um, of course, in light of what happened to Dr. King the following day, the speech became eerie uh, and very sad. But years later, decades later, Senator Obama is re-invoking that mission. He clarifies that the Moseses of the earlier generation are the ones who, who achieved the great early achievements for the movement. They're the ones who achieved breaking down the great legal forms of discrimination, voting discrimination, basic discrimination in access to restaurants and services, discrimination of legal status. But, he said, of course, the mission remains because there are so many residual forms of racial discrimination in America that have to be tackled, including, of course, socioeconomic differences that are preserved by institutional racism. What Senator Obama proceeded to say was, in his vision of the 21st century America, the Joshua generation, which will have to tackle these new problems, would have to do so in a more moderate and a more collaborative tone. That was his view at the time, at least, of what the 21st century American political landscape would, would require. Just over a year and a half later, shortly following Obama's first election to the office of president, David Remnick, who is the editor of The New Yorker, published an article called The Joshua Generation in which he reflected on this moment in Selma and on his experience generally in covering the Obama campaign in 2007 and 2008. He wrote that, in his experience, Obama saw this Joshua Generation theme as very central to his vision for his campaign and as central to his mission for becoming president altogether. And in a sense, he had implicitly positioned himself as the leader of this generation. With that, I'm going to close the first chapter of Yehoshua and introduce myself.
My name is Husky Kopel. I live in Philadelphia, and I'm a law student. This podcast is a new project I'm undertaking. I'm going to call it The Profits Project. To take a close, meaningful look at the four books which comprise what's known as Nevi'im Rishonim, the early prophets. These books are among the books of the Hebrew Bible, truly something extraordinary. They are pretty much all narrative and all drama. They tell the story from the time of the people's arrival in what will become the land of Israel until the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. They are, therefore, in a sense, the anthology of the first independent commonwealth of Israel. The way I'm going to look at these books is through a lens which I find compelling and interesting, namely the lens of modern social movements. Each week, I'll take up one chapter, going in order, and I'll consider the way that movements of various kinds, especially in America and Israel, but also around the world, have invoked the images and people and events of that chapter to advance their causes. It turns out there's a lot of material here. I think especially because the biblical text has a special place at the heart of the Jewish and Christian traditions, and so images and people from this text are always resonant and they're always accessible. So studying the books of the early prophets in this way will enable us to see not only how people read and understand these dramatic stories, but more importantly, how they use them. So with that, I hope you'll join me going forward, and I'm looking forward to next week for the second chapter and the story of Yehoshua's spies in the house of Rachav.